Now this uh, opportunity, the Vasa is, is coming to the end in this uh, retreat, just to encourage this this reflectiveness and to really value it. Uh, see it's something to trust in and to use in uh, in your daily life, you know, so that you you keep learning from the the way things are, rather than always striving to to change things uh, according to some ideas you have or trying to get something you don't have or and your own sense of yourself the sakya ditti really get to know that and don't believe it don't believe any of it <clears throat> whatever you think about yourself or any criticisms judgments uh, you know see only as uh, conditions arising ceasing So, you know, just to, to keep reminding yourself, so it's easy to believe, you know, our, <clears throat> our emotional habits or our feelings, and they seem so real, so uh, urgent. And that's a quality, isn't it? Uh, urgency and importance. Pointing out the difference between discernment and discrimination and so recognize that that the thinking mind is discriminating and so it's always dividing it's it's na its function is division comparing one thing with another so this is why you can't trust the thinking process grasping that even the 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 uh, bariati dhamma just grasping that is uh, still not liberating because the way if we don't practice if we don't put it into practice then it remains merely theoretical or or we have our own interpretations or we have party line Theravada Buddhism or whatever you know you we we can understand or think we understand the the conceptual part. When like Paticca Samupada, dependent origin, and you can't really understand that until you put it into practice. And just trying to understand it intellectually is, uh, it's, you know, it's like um, nonsense syllables. Or you might figure it out uh, as a theory, but it its function is for liberation, for for pointing at reality, not for theorizing about the nature of ultimate truth or the causes of suffering or the end of suffering. It's not theoretical. Uh, it's very practical. So this batibata, this this word in the each noble truth, the uh, the second aspect of each noble truth is batibata. So this is this word, bhati but in Pali means the practice. It's it's actually making it work. It's not just uh, grasping theory or academic Buddhism. So one could you know easily say uh, suffering, the first noble truth of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and just grasp the idea of dukkha, you know, and, say, and that's what the first noble truth is. But actually. The three aspects of each truth. The first one is there is this dukkha. Dukkha should be understood. So that's the batibata. That's the, and what to do with it? Encouraging you to to look at, to understand, to to learn from dukkha rather than just try to get rid of it and uh, or ignore it. So there's a pu book published the, several years ago. By somebody, and they they uh, use the word lack as the English most suitable English word for dukkha, uh, which is quite a good uh, reflection. The sense of lack, incompleteness, 
something missing. And on the personal level, isn't it, I always feel, at least I do, when I operate from personality, from a sense of myself as being whatever, there's always this, something, there's always something unsatisfactory about it, or some sense of lack, or unfinished, or incompleteness. So that's why trying to make my personality enlightened, you know, is futile. You know, I realized years ago, my, I was never going to have an enlightened personality because it's just not possible. Personality is habit, is conditioning. Sakaya ditti. There's a relief, you know, to know that I don't have to make myself into a perfect person. And this is where oftentimes we misjudge each other, you know, when uh, we expect <coughs> people who practiced a long time without insight to have perfect personalities. You know, we imagine that all loving, all compassionate uh, being that just oozes sweetness and light every moment of the day and night. And uh, that's an ideal, you know, that's Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, that's a statue. Beautiful, but it's not, it's not the way, you know, we're not statues. We, we have personalities, we have habits. <clears throat> we have to deal with a sensitive condition, ongoing, relentless sensitivity. You know, this is, when you really look at the human state that, we, that you operate in, you're, you're always dealing with being irritated in some way. That's just the nature of this realm. It's a sense realm. It's an irritating realm. It's not a complaint, it's just recognition of this is the way it is. Ever since you were born, you know, you born out from your mother's womb, then you're operating, you know, with with temperatures, heat and cold and and hunger and thirst and and uh, excretory functions of the body. And these are just basic kind of conditions that all human beings have to deal with are all creatures. So sensitivity is not ideal, you know, it's, uh, it makes us very, you know, it, it, it's uh, something that we learn from. It, it's never satisfied sensually. You know, you can't completely satisfy yourself through the senses. We have momentary gratification, and we have pleasure through the senses, but it's, oh, you can't sustain it and keep it. You can only desire it when it's not there. And when it's present, oftentimes we, you know, when, we, when we're having a kind of wonderful peak moment of sensory delight, then we, we, we know we can't keep it, and we, we try to hang on, hold on to it, which destroys it. The minute you grasp at something, you've, you've made it, you've made it, uh, made dukkha out of it. So even beauty and that uh, sensory pleasure, beauty, uh, love, all these, these uh, kind of peak moments, are destroyed through grasping, through wanting to hold on to them. So notice when, like in relationships, falling in love with somebody, as soon as you start grasping, you know, you, you demand and grasp and try to possess, this. it's no longer love, is it? It's, it's me wanting to hold on to you. So I can sustain this this wonderful feeling. So it's uh, in the Blake poem, "Kiss the joy as it flies." This is, is always like this line. 
because it is very profound, you know. Beauty is part of the sense experience. But don't try to hold on to it or try to, you know, always try to get it by remembering and trying to to find it or get hold of it, let it, a joy arises when the conditions are there. Beauty uh, impresses us, but let it go, don't, don't grasp it. So like kissing the joy as it flies, <laughs> it's a rather sweet way of putting it, you know. You're appreciating that you're you're expressing your love for beauty, but it you're not grasping. Because you notice Ubadana, just as soon as you, you know, I've got to have it, then that is a joyless, painful mental state. So we become embittered if we you know if we're trying to grasp hold of somebody else or hold on to something. Uh, we become, you know, we no longer find joy in our lives, but misery. Because we're trying, you know, we, we're operating from ignorance, from, <coughs> from uh, desire, from sakyaditi, from suffering. And so the awakened consciousness is where we, you know, we, we can flow with life rather than trying to create some some ideal and then try to hold on to it because nobody has ever been able to do that. I remember going to uh, Russia last June and in the St. Petersburg they finally you know, in the Catherine the Great Summer Palace was destroyed in the Second World War. It was where the German army camped out. And they absolutely kind of demolished this uh, this famous opulent summer palace of Catherine the Great, and uh, and they've rebuilt it now. And when I went to Russia the first time, it wasn't ready yet. It's taken years, and it's very opulent, you know, it's over the top, and you're like, <laughs> and gold and ornaments and inlaid marbles, and they have a room, uh, amber room, famous amber room, whole room, you know, with, uh, lined with amber. And the, the original amber room was somehow, uh, the Nazis, when they, when they, took over this palace, they took, they took away this, uh, all this amber and nobody knows what happened to it. But they re, re, uh, reconstructed the whole thing. <coughs> Very impressive. You can see there's a, Catherine the Great built this, this paradise of a palace where, you know, it's just, You know her version of of no doubt no, no, something extraordinarily beautiful. When you have power and wealth and people that can do such things, and yet how it gets destroyed and rebuilt, changing conditions, and now it's a tourist site. So the place is chock a block with tourists, and they have so many tourists there that you have to. You go in crowds of people, you know, kind of pushing against each other. So these attempts, you know, St. Petersburg itself, Peter the Great built this, you know, the city built with the purpose built. There's nothing there before. So they're kind of, kind of duplicating Venice in a way, and it's uh, all this... Um, Kind of Baroque architecture and Italianate kind of uh, buildings, and very beautiful in, in its way. And yet, how much happiness can ever be? You know, one appreciates 
uh, things like this, but it's still, you know, one can still be in, in a hell realm in St. Petersburg. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the joy is in the, in the awareness. So even in a prison cell, you know, if you, you know, there's my experience in either Samanera, in this uh, ramshackle kuti in Nongkai, you know, it was not like saying, like uh, Catherine the Great's palace, summer palace, or anything like that, a little shack, really, hut, in a scrubby forest, but began to experience this incredible radiance, illumination, uh, beauty, which made everything beautiful, you know, the, the hut, the forest, didn't need to build anything or get anything, but just, it's a natural state, consciousness itself is light. So you can see on the sense level when you, you know, I have this. I've told you uh, about you know exploring consciousness, eye consciousness, seeing because uh, you know we're human human beings. We love to look at things, visual beauty. So then uh, I notice that uh, in the dark I can't see anything. So in the early years, monasticism, I used to, you know, in the dark night, contemplate. Just, uh, I'm open my eyes in in the dark, and and I say I can't see anything. Because sight depends on, on light. You need to have a light in order to see. But then I went even further. I thought, but I'm looking. My eyes are looking at darkness. So I'm seeing, but I'm seeing darkness. And of course darkness hides everything, you know, all the objects and the colors and everything aren't, pre you know, you can't see them, they aren't, they aren't uh, visible in the dark. But the seeing, the conscious seeing is still operating, seeing the dark, and that's consciousness. And that's light itself, isn't it? It's consciousness is light. So you you began to get to the source of consciousness. We're we're conscious within the, this form, the human body. Consciousness is not contained in the body. The body is like it's a. It's in the consciousness. So then the consciousness becomes the unlimited, unformed, has no boundary, no beginning or end. And then the, the bodies we have when we're physically born and we, we're operating as conscious beings. And that consciousness is, uh, is light, it's intelligence, it's knowing, it called the word consciousness itself means knowing, kind of knowing. And then after that we, after, these are natural, this is tamma, tamacha, natural phenomena, natural way of things. But then, then we, uh, after that we become conditioned. And so we, you know, this is pointing out what is artificial. What is what are the artifices that we hold on to and identify with? And this is the dukkha, the sankharas. You know, there's natural sankharas, uh, you know, forms, the physical body's one. The uh, trees and flowers and 
birds and bees and things like this. The sounds, smells, taste, touch, pleasure, pain. But then there's the artificial sankharas that, w that we create out of ignorance. So this is Sakya Ditti Thilabhata Baramasa. So in, in this way, like when, uh, like the Buddha said in the scripture to go out, you know, to leave the, the, the town and go out to, to nature, into the forest. So this is going into the forest because these are natural sankharas, isn't it? It's, it's na nature, dhammachat. It's no, we don't create it out of ignorance. We don't, uh, it's not, not artificial. Tree is what it is, isn't it? Flower is what it is. We're not creating flowers, mountains and oceans and all these. When, that's why nature is calming to the human mind because what, what really, you know, irritates us is the, is the artificial sankharas that we create out of our ignorance out of greed, hatred, and delusion. So those, these artificial sankharas, <coughs> you know, are summed up in the three fetters. Sakya, Titi, Thilabhata, Bahamasa, Vichikicca. So it's attachment to these artificial sankharas that we suffer, you know, we We live in this in this world of uh, of isolation, of separation, loneliness, envy, jealousy, competition, uh, and all the rest come from you know this sense of me, this, this uh, artificial sense that I am this body and I am this person, and our prejudices, you know our cultural biases, then none of them are satisfying to us. So when we attach to cultural biases, to conventions, to, to uh, the ego, the sakya ditti, and, and uh, the thinking process. For example, when we call a tree a tree, that's that's the name itself is artificial, isn't it? Tree doesn't doesn't say it's a tree. We call it that. And so, you know, we we sometimes our own creations are more real to us than the than the real thing. So we have views and preferences. These are beautiful tree, ugly tree. I like take this tree away, get rid of it. I like this one. <laughs> and so we sort out nature according to one's personal likes and dislikes. And so out of this ignorance, of course, the environmental problems arise and the destruction of the environment, the air, the seas, everything to, to, to our, uh, you know, our manipulation according to ignorance. So this avicca, bhajaya sankara, this, this ignorance is... Uh, is the is the source. So then, awakening is that awakening is uh, sati sampatanya. Puto tamo is this relationship of knowing, intelligence, discerning, knowing but not projecting onto life, you know, uh, out of ignorance, uh, or our own desires and fears. Now in the cultivating mindfulness, I'll remind you of the, you know, the, the breath, the body, Sound of silence. Now these are these are my reference points. 
because wherever I am, you know, in 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 meditation retreat, Amravati, or in London, or wherever, there's the breathing, there's the the body, and the sound of silence. So this is a remembering this helps to uh, establish that to integrate mindfulness in in the in life itself, the flow of life. But sometimes there's meditation techniques and and want, and trying to hold on to peaceful samadhi states. Uh, then we, you know, we we have to control everything. We get into being very controlling and trying to, you know, going around going, Shh, don't talk, don't make a noise. Uh, kind of uh, obsessions. We get irritated because somebody's speaking too loudly, or the sound of the lawnmower, or this, and we get planes flying overhead, bird singing. I've heard monks get angry because there's too many birds. Destroy your samadhi. It's in deep samadhi, and then a bird goes, cheep, cheep, and then it. <laughs> what good is that? You know, you're getting, you know, you annihilate birds, or. You missed the point. You, you're making yourself so precious, you're worthless. <laughs> so, in the in, with mindfulness, notice it's not it's not trying to. It's no longer refinement we're after. You know, it's to have you know where you're in a sensory deprivation situation where nothing. There's no harshness. It's only, you know, silence and. Nothing, nothing irritating, obviously too irritating. Uh, you get into very blissful states. But recognize we're saying the world is like this. Sangsara, sensory bodies, human body, the, the sense experience. You know, we're, we're opening to the totality. We're not trying to, to ignore the coarse, the unpleasant. By just trying to kind of hold ourselves into refined condition experience to just feel peaceful and happy because you can't integrate that into life. You have to control, you have to live in a in a in a kind of fortress protecting yourself from any unpleasant, harsh impingement. But in in this way it's liberating. That's why the the idea of the Dutanga monk you know, the not living in a, you know, building a, a fortress around himself to protect himself from from harsh impingement, but out in the middle of it, in the storms and the hunger and and the sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, uh, all this kind of thing is very with the natural, with the dhamma chat, with nature. Just notice how how man-made, human-made uh, conditions they do affect us. Usually, what we make is is a form of conceit. Really, uh, look at me. Where nature is what it is. You know why why do we like real flowers and then not artificial ones? You can get flowers. In Thailand, artificial ones that are just as beautiful, or even more beautiful than real flowers, made out of silk, and they don't shrivel up and smell bad and all that. They last for ages. Don't you have to throw them out sometimes? You get tired of them. Why don't we, uh, you know, why don't we just use plastic flowers or silk flowers? You can get really good ones, high quality, not just cheap ones. If you've got expensive tastes, why do we prefer flowers like that? And they, when they do, they they don't last all that long. It's because, in in some way, you know, this recognition is they're natural. They are what they are. And we don't want them to be permanent. We're not saying, I wish you were permanent. 
we we can enjoy them as they you know as they they exist and we can also learn from you know keep reflecting on that that these are how you know they're kind of miracles aren't they flowers uh, always seem rather delicate and yet they come out of the earth you know the coarse earth with the rocks and the dirt and the worms and the bugs and grow up and then come forth bloom forth into beautiful colors and shapes it always seems miraculous to me when I contemplate it flowers are frail and delicate things and yet they come out of the very coarse earth and so this is you know the the natural they, they are what they're not pretending to be something they're not a silk flower is pretending to be a flower <laughs> so it's not what it really is is it it's 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 made by human beings out of maybe beautiful materials, and we 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 make it into a form according to what we we can, one would consider beautiful. So it, we're trying to pre make something into something that it's not really. Where with uh, flowers, you know, they they are what they are. Some are more beautiful than others, bigger, smaller, red, yellow. Uh, blue and so forth they, but they are what they are so this this uh, reflection on the way it is when they even the most beautiful flower, beautiful flower fades shrivels up and rots and that's its perfection you know it's, a, it's not meant to be something that it stays beautiful forever so then our, our we learn, kiss the joy as it flies, appreciate the beauty in the moment, but don't hold on to it. The upadana, desire to keep it, to have it, and upadana that comes out of ignorance, suffer, you, you suffer even when you have what you want. For the monastic community, you see, you know, the the how you how you regard the monastic convention you know in a personal way is it personal or are you just putting up with it or just blindly conforming to the rules and tradition so you, you begin to to see you know this is a this is a convention it's a form but it, it's quite a beautiful one and it um, you know it has its it, it, its aesthetic aesthetic quality it's harmless you know where where the Buddhist monasticism uh, encourages towards nonviolence in, 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 in every way. So it is a respectful form of, of nature, isn't it? We're not to to exploit or abuse the natural conditions. It's a form living in the society which which benefits the society. You know, I observe how, you know, here Amarbati, how many letters I get, and probably many of you, people just expressing gratitude for being here. And it's a place where people can come and are welcome. They can, and it brings out, you know, people come here usually on their best behavior. They try to, you know, they come with food offerings to practice, to study Dhamma, to practice it. And and this is uh, you know it's bringing out offering this opportunity to for people to to awaken encouragement towards good behavior towards morality generosity and 
and reflection, mindfulness, meditation. So these these kind of institutions, these conventions are, you know, they're, they're very beautiful things to bring into the society, bringing this form of Theravada Buddhism into Britain, for example. It's 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 here to enhance Britain. It's not here to cause more division and trouble to this society. I see that you know that this Theravada Buddhism is in my intention for coming here is to enhance the society rather than to be another religious sect trying to convert people and cause more division and problems for for this country. So we're not here to convert or convince anybody or to put down uh, any other religion or to cause more strife and misery but to offer these the opportunities for dana sila bhavana So when you, you know, sometimes you can, you, you think you'd like to be more active, like engaged in social uplift and uh, we can feel, because that's very much cultural attitude, isn't it? Of You should go out there and fight for freedom or stand up against the evil forces. But also, just, you know, I've contemplated this, uh, this isn't a, even though sometimes I feel like going protesting against the Burmese junta and whatnot, <laughs> because I personally feel quite, you know, indignant about how they behave. But, but I do trust in the, in the goodness of this convention and it's just its presence here and the intention of all of us to practice for, for realization has its benefits that maybe you can't measure in any direct way in the present moment. But I notice in my own experience in Thailand with uh, going there in 1966, you know, just that opportunity that was given to me to uh, ordain, become a monk and, and live with somebody like Ajahn Chah. It transformed my life from, from, you know, just that opportunity because that existed, it was available, I was there to, uh, to take advantage of it. And so then you see that the tradition itself has been able to carry on this, this uh, Four Noble Truths, this Dhamma teaching that was established 2,550 years ago in India, you know, so it's not, it, it hasn't died out, it hasn't disappeared because it, it, the Buddha, of, you know, the historical Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, actually established a, a convention that, ha, that has its ability to survive and is now being appreciated in countries like this where they, it never, there's no known record of Buddhism ever, you know, having much effect or reaching the European continents. At this time also, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a non-violent religion, it's not, it doesn't demand belief or adherence, you know, so it's a way of saying, wake up and see, you know, when you're talking about suffering or dukkha, <coughs> this is something every human being can relate to. It's not about Buddhism and only Buddhists suffer and Christians, Jews and that don't. This is human condition, you know, this is common to every human being. So it's a, it's a pointing at something very obvious, banal, 
Isn't that it's just ordinary? Dukkha, first noble truth, is so ordinary, nothing esoteric, mysterious about it. So you know, so we're not even you know, people. We don't have to believe in Buddha or in the words even. You know, it's just these are expedient means that can be used skillfully, but it's not like a converting. You don't convert to Buddhism and throw out the other religion and convert to Buddhism. So I see, you know, unless you see it in a very sectarian way, you know, like Buddhism is better than the rest, or when we get into the discrimin discriminating uh, thoughts and preferences, you know, then we think Buddhism is, we think, I like Theravada Buddhism, it's better than the rest. What is that? That's personal opinion, thought, attachment to thought. And then it causes the division, you know, Theravada is better than the, than the others. That is, that's not Dhamma, is it? That's not the truth of the way it is. It's maybe my opinion, my thakiditi opinion. I like it better than the rest, or I want to think that it's better than the other forms, superior, or it's cultural. Maybe I think I'm, you know, you've been brought up in Theravada country, and and you've been told all the other forms are lesser or not real, not the reality. But this is not dhamma, is it? It's not the way it is. It's just, it's Buddhism. So the word Buddhism can, can contain everything that has even the slightest connection to anything Buddhist. So you, you know, all these different, uh, is uh, Nichiren type of Buddhism, you know, is that Sokogakai, is that and we consider them Buddhists. And if you get into, no, only Theravada, Theravada is the original, the pure, and we get into, uh, you know, dismissing Mahayana. That's not Dhamma, is it? It's, that's, not, that's not what the Buddha was teaching. He's pointing to the way it is. So this is, you know, the discern this. Discern is not is not discriminating. It's knowing. So in the in the uh, um, mindfulness practice, then of course you're discerning sufferings like this, understanding the the origins, the causes of suffering. Let go of them. You can see them. You're discerning dunha or desires like this. And attachment to desire out of ignorance is, is a cause of one's misery and unhappiness. You discern it. You're not, you're not discriminating. You're observing. Witnessing the causes and the cessation and the path or the, the way of mindfulness or the way of non-suffering. So this is discerned, seen very directly, it's no longer uh, hope to, to attain uh, the middle way in the future, or attain Nibbana before I die. Things like that, that kind of thinking is is discrimination, and Sakya Ditti Thilabhata Bharamasa Vichikecha. So these three fetters, you know, they're very obvious when you start uh, contemplating them, recognizing them. Because they are, they're very, you know, they, they're like sore thumbs, they stand out. And, uh, and, and but it's to, to and this, this particular teaching of the fetters and the four stages is very, you know, it's a very skillful one. So you begin to see, you know, you have a way of, of, of really helpful guidance towards looking at 
artificial conditions that you create, cultural conditioning, the ego, the personality, sakyaditi, the thinking process. It's very clearly stated in the in the in the first three fetters. And then you're seeing those the the self in terms of Dhamma. The self arises and ceases. You're not saying it, you know. You're not denying it, but you're you know you're not making an artificial connection to it as my, me and mine, and and believing it's something more than what it is. When we when we don't discern, then we we actually believe our own Sakyaditi Siddhabhattabharamasa Vichikicha. You know, we're actually seeing and experiencing life through kind of distortions in consciousness. Like you're looking through distorted glass, one of these uh, glasses where, where everything is, is out of kilter and strange and monstrous. It's not clear. And that's what Sakyaditi, Sila Bhattabharamasa Vichikicha, they're like, like, uh, Condition distortions out of ignorance, so we, we no wonder we suffer. We experience unhappiness and misery and despair and anguish because we're looking through through conditions that that throw everything off, that make us feel separate, frightened, alienated from Dhamma from nature itself. So now when I use the word consciousness, in, uh, in Thailand they use the word jitta, the jit. So this, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is not something this is not cultural conditioning. This is, this is just a, you know, it's a convenient word. But in English, consciousness works very well. There's a lot of interest now. No, Western, Western uh, science, psychology, you know, I don't really understand the nature of consciousness very well. And so, you know, because they've never developed that kind of... Uh, Clarity uh, of seeing things you know, in this, this, this uh, the condition and the unconditioned, and so like Western science, Western psychology doesn't have any unconditioned reality to it. It's it's all you know. Psychotherapy is all about trying to uh, create a better sakyaditi, you know, a more normal, healthy, happy self not towards ultimate reality or realizing ultimate reality or Dhamma. So it's fine, you know, trying to have a happier, better, more positive, beautiful self. It's not, nothing wrong with that. But it's still, you know, it's still limited and bound and, uh, and it doesn't get to the cause of suffering doesn't release you from from the cause or where you can discern see the cause of suffering so in uh, and this is you know in in uh, buddha dhamma is that this this there is the unborn uncreated unformed unconditioned this is that's that statement of fact isn't it it's uh, the way the Buddha stated it in the Udana. It's not speculative. It's not theoretical. There is, and then and then the, without that, if there was was not the unborn, uncreated, unformed, there'd be no way of escape from the born, the created, the condition. So the the born, the created, condition. This is these are the, what we're experiencing through the body and senses. Everything that, you know, the whole world we live in, the, the sensory conscious experience, the physical world is all about 
conditions changing. The personality, the Sakyaditi, Sita Bhattabharamasa, everything is in this in the relentless changing uh, motion of beginning and ending, bo being born and dying. These are, it's, uh, and, and then, but there is the unborn. So this is, what is the unborn then? It's not, you can't try to find it. Then you, whatever you find through, uh, through thought or through feeling is changing. There's nothing unborn about it. So it's, it's not in, in finding God or something that seems eternal or true, but in letting go of change, of the conditions, of freeing yourself from that obsession, blind obsession to attaching and identifying with the, these conditions and the artificial conditions of civilization, of self, to this recognition, reality of the unconditioned. This is real. This is Dhamma. This is reality. So in the Third Noble Truth, the realization is the is the Bhattibhata, recognizing, realizing. Conditions arise, they cease. And then Nibbana, this is reality. This is not some precious, refined state of consciousness. The deathless, anatta, Nibbana, this is real, it's here and now. Now when I refer to sound of silence, this is, this is, uh, I don't know what it is myself, but it's always present. It's like the space or the consciousness. No boundary, but it's, it's real. I don't create it. And by resting in it, then there's this letting go of of my tendencies to try to get things or get rid rid of things, control things. We get a perspective on my own thinking process. This, uh, this early days used to, how do you get out of the thinking process? How can I stop this thinking mind, this chattering, ongoing, busy thinking mind? And then, you know, having, recognizing this sound of silence, thinking ceases. Now, when I start thinking about sound of silence, that's not it. You know, so it's, um, you know, trying to get it or find it or think about it or analyze it or doubt it or whatever. It's not the point. It's... Uh, recognizing and then practicing with it. Because it does, you know, if you begin to, to value it, then it, wherever you are, you know, you, you refer to it. So in, you know, in London or St. Petersburg or wherever, <laughs> still, it's the same everywhere. And so I have this sense of, you know, this unbounded non-self in which there's no suffering. And when I do suffer, it's because I'm getting caught up in, some, in my own, in the sense of myself or wanting or not wanting, thinking about the future, worrying about things liking or disliking, getting caught up in my own personal likes and dislikes, then I, then I feel alienated and dissatisfied and, and the whole misery, miserable samsara arises through, through that heedlessness. So it's, it's through this, this kind of 
practice, investigation, discernment, recognize, pr testing it out. I'm not asking you to believe what I'm saying, just this, uh, you know, the encouragement to to find out for yourself. And but you might be expecting something fantastic, but it's quite ordinary. Sound of silence is not like the hallelujah chorus. You know, it's not. You don't get blown away into a state of ecstasy with it. So some people just find it irritating, you know. They think it's something wrong with their hearing process. or Because, you know, you're thinking of cosmic sound, then that makes it sound very special and ethereal. Or... Uh, you know, but if it's just this, this sound of silence that I'm aware of right now, nothing fantastic about it, quite ordinary. But I don't create it, and it flows, it's ongoing, it doesn't begin and end. My attention to it can begin and end, I can recognize it and then get caught up in something else. But it's always present, like the space, isn't it? It's always here, whether I notice it or not, something else. So in in referring to it, testing it out, I, you know, I've used it a lot in the community life where, you know, I feel very upset with somebody I feel really uh, averse or resentful or angry with some individual. And that's a very strong emotion, you know, to be angry. And then, then I go to the sound of silence. And then I would count maybe, you know, in the sound of silence, one, two, three, four, five. And then I'd try to, you know, think, what was I angry about? Sometimes I, find, I have to find, you know, I'm, you know, sometimes if I'm really angry, it, it hangs around, <laughs> that strong emotion. But sometimes I have to really search again, what was I so upset about? <clears throat> But if I try to suppress anger, you know, then it, it makes it worse. By suppressing my aversion, anger and frustration, just because it's not proper and I, I can feel, you know, self-critical. You shouldn't be angry at people, you know. I can be quite magnanimous on a rational level. You must forgive, have metta for everybody. I'm great at this, you know, mag magnanimity. The great gesture, all forgiving, all loving. I'm all for it, you know. I think it's marvelous. But the reality of the moment, there's the, the rational grand gesture, but there's also, at the same time, anger, which is not magnanimous. It's like, how dare you, you did this, how dare you say that, and act like this, and get into that. And then I think, oh, forgive them. You must have metta. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Patronizing. <laughs> and at the same time, <laughs> wanting to strangle them. <laughs> How do you resolve that conflict? <laughs> And so it, it's, it's getting outside the conflict itself. It isn't through being grand and magnanimous, nor in 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 just uh, you know getting caught up in the emotions blindly, but in recognizing these are like this. The, but my refuge is in this sound of silence, the unconditioned behind the the rage or the emotion or the rational grandeur. And then, the, then you, you know, then you begin to 
See, non-suffering is like this. And dukkha is like this. And you're grasping my feelings, my views, is then, then I do suffer a lot on a personal level. So there's uh, this discernment, it's like this. Suffering is like this, non-suffering is like this. The way it is. 